Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, Joseph, you. Is there more to that sentence? No, I just want to say that. I, oh, I was Joseph. waiting. Oh, Joseph. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. So Joey, I discovered a, a fun little fact. You know what the least spoken language in the world is? I do not. What is it? Sign language. That's, oh, <laughs> I'm never prepared for your jokes, Matt. How do you always manage to do this every week? They it's get, astonishing. They get worse. They're, they're, it's, they're, it's a skill. They're getting progressively worse every week. <laughs> it's, it's my cross to bear, guys. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I am the man in the back saying everyone attack. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. Ladies and gents, please welcome our most prestigious guest ever, the senior game designer and product architect, Gavin Verhey. What's the difference between a bad and a good joke? Timing. <laughs> Matt, I think he's got you beat. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. The, 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 I, I, my impression was I was supposed to enter with some kind of lame joke. Was that? Did I do that properly? Was I on the on the right path? A plus well, Dana, two thumbs up. Did anyone out there laugh? If you were at, if you were out there and laughed, thank you very much. I really appreciate everyone who, who played along. Thank you. Thank you for coming uh, and letting me indulge myself on your show. Thank you for coming on to the show. We're really, really happy to have you on. No, it's really my pleasure. And I i mean, I'm a huge part of the commander scene. I do a lot of work at Wizards on our future commander products. And this seems like a great place to come on and chat about it and all the great things that EDH Rec has to offer. Yeah. So for any listener who for some possible reason is not in the know. Uh, Gavin is a senior game designer and product architect at Wizards of the Coast. He's helped design sets like C-17, Battle Bond, C-17, of course, Commander 2017, and then, of course, Commander 20. A whole bunch of crap. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> Joey's a little starstruck if you couldn't tell. so many great things that aren't out yet. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited. I, I keep seeing you guys hint about 2019 and what a year it's going to be. And every time you say something, I, I get a little more hype and then a little more hype. And eventually somebody's head is just going to pop. I can't even decide what my favorite thing we were launching in, in this year is. I think I have a favorite, but there's a couple really good candidates. So anyway, I don't want to be the, the Wizards guy who just comes on and hype stuff you can't talk about and then, you know, has no culpability. But I'm very <laughs> excited about it. Will you at least tell us when it comes out, which one it was? Yeah, when, well, okay, when at the end of the year... I'll probably write another article, like the State of Design article I wrote recently, and talk about what my favorite things that we did were, for sure. So, Gavin, just for quick introductions, what does being a senior game designer and product architect, what does that all entail? Yeah, totally. So to kind of break it down, it is three components. The senior means that I'm old. The <laughs> game designer part means that I work on coming up with what these wild cards do. So their abilities, mana costs, mechanics, that kind of thing. And there's a lot of people at Wizards that do that um, on our team. The thing that I do that's more unique and really interesting and something we can kind of dig into a little bit during this, uh, this podcast is the product architect side of things. And what that basically means is I'm almost a level above the designers in a sense that the designers are looking at individual cards, what they're going to put in the set, et cetera, et cetera. But when I'm product architecting something, 
I'm thinking about it from an overall structure standpoint. Like, what does the connective tissue look like? What year should we do certain things? When should a certain product come out? Do we have a hole that we need to fill? For example, with uh, the Challenger decks last year and now this year, that was an opportunity we saw to put something out to help give standard players or prospective standard players a thing they could use. So I come up with those that product idea in a lot of cases, and then I'll work with someone else to actually help create it. So in the case of the Challenger decks for uh, this year, I we went through the Challenger deck process, I was managing them, but Donald Smith Jr. from the play design team was the one who actually created the decks and chose all the cards that went into them. And him and I went back and forth on the overall goals of the product, but at the end of the day, I let him make the final decision. And so I'm always one level above. And with this year's Challenger decks, you know, that was something that, that him and I worked pretty close on. And from product to product, it will differ. And then also I look across many, many years because a weird thing about working at Wizards is that we work on things many years in advance. So I'm constantly working on things for 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, and maybe even all within the same day of each other. Um, I'll you know be in a meeting for two or three of those different years. So I have to be the kind of person to bridge that gap and understand the bigger picture. That's awesome. Do you have a favorite set that you've personally worked on? Yeah, but it's not out yet. <laughs> nice. There, there it is again. Good, there it is again. Good answer. I really do. I'm not just saying that to be facetious either. I really do have a favorite set that's not out yet, and it is going to kill me how long. Well, hopefully not actually, <laughs> but it is going to be very hard to wait until this thing comes out because one of the hardest things is, especially when you work on a thing super far down the pipeline, it it it, it eats at you for a while until it finally bursts out and and releases. Um, when you get to talk about the set, sort of like Un when uh, when Rosewater was leading that. Mm-hmm. There's a set I've worked on that, well, will be out someday, and when it is out, you guys will you guys will all love it. There is a set that, yeah, that will be out someday, and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> so what's your favorite you're set? Hanging, you're hanging on every word. The favorite set I've ever worked on that has been announced, though, is Battle Ball. There we go. Okay. It was, it was a blast to work on. I felt like it was a child of mine in a lot of ways. I got to wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, hear its screaming voice and make notes on how I can make the set better and design new cards. And we went through so many iterations to get that into a a place where it was doing what we wanted, where people were happy with it. But eventually I, all that hard work really paid off and it was a smash hit for us last year. That one, two punch of Dominaria and battle bond back to back for commander players is an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. Yeah, and you get all the, the great commander stuff from there, and then that, of course, leads into the core set followed by Ravnica, and Ravnica has all kinds of good two-color cards, which are just great for commander, plus a bunch of sweet new legends to play with. So it was, it was a good summer, not to mention the commander decks, too. <laughs> of course. So, Gavin, we have to ask, what commander decks do you, creator of cards, play yourself? Well, my favorite deck that, I'm, that I play, and the one that I often take around with me to places is Mariki Riberet. If you're familiar, this is a white, blue, black legend from, well, it was reprinted in, in Time Spirals, its most recent printing, as on the time-shifted sheet. And uh, not a lot of people know about this card, but it just lets you, it's a 1-1 for 3 mana, and you can tap her to steal one of your opponent's creatures. And if she goes away, the creature goes away, or if she untaps, the creature, the creature goes away as well. So I like to use it just as a little political thing. You put her out there, you know, no one really wants to attack or mess with you because you could threaten stealing a creature. And then my deck is kind of just, you know, a blue-white-black control deck, and that kind of just helps give you that extra time you need, plus dealing with people who try and cheat stuff into play too early. That sounds cruel and wonderful. Well, she's great because you can run Arena of the Ancients and then truthfully say, you know what, it hits me too. <laughs> Dana's challenged yeah, the stats yeah, exactly. on that card in the past. He's definitely a big fan. Dana, also I, cruel and wonderful. I'm always looking for decks for Arena. Um, you know, the, one, another deck I have right now that I like a lot is I participated in the Reddit gift exchange last year where a bunch of Magic players all sent things to each other. And I sent off a really cool package to someone else full of some really, really unique stuff. Uh, but what someone sent me is that they knew who I, I was. So they did a bit of research on me and they knew that, found out that I loved to travel. And they actually sent me a complete Iceland-themed commander deck with full-on bulleted points for why every single card was in the deck. It's led by Chromat. And it's bulleted points on why every single card's in the deck, how it relates to Iceland, why the creatures are there, why the spells are there, etc., why the lands they chose are there. And that's one of the coolest things I have. And I'm, I haven't changed it at all yet because I just love the version they handed to me. And um, it's just, those two things are, the two decks I just, just described, are two entirely different reasons to build a deck. 
and part of the reason why I love Commander so much because you get the you know I, like my Marika Ribera deck is like kind of spiky you know really strong powerful and then I have this goofy Iceland Commander deck with cards no one in the right mind would play with but it's fun to have this theme and uh, no matter where on the spectrum I fall I, I really enjoy playing with both. So since you you mentioned you're working so far ahead on sets in the future, do you ever find yourself doing things with your deck or building decks based on cards that aren't out yet? Like, I'm going to build this deck because I know in six months this card's coming out that's going to be perfect for it. Is, like, is that something you have to, like, intentionally not do, or do you find yourself kind of winding up doing that subconsciously? Well, not only do we do that, but we actually do it intentionally because what will happen is we'll build the deck and then play it internally to be able to find out what's working and what's not working. For example, with a commander release, during late in the process of the design, we'll actually just build up entirely separate decks, not at all linked to the, the decks in the product, with the legendary creatures from the set. So we can try them out in a more open context. Because, you know, when you're building the decks and you, you're playing with the decks out of the box, you have have a very limited number of, of cards in there, and you know you're kind of constrained in what you, you can put in. Um, but when you take it outside that context, it opens it up, and there's a lot of stuff you can do. Yeah, we you know made sure to try all those out, and especially in Commander 2018 with what I call the bonus legends, the ones that weren't the face legends: Rick Smithies, Varchild, Eureka, and um, Zancha. And Zancha, right? We made sure to build decks around those so we could try them out and get them uh, in games as commanders. That is really. That's really cool to hear that. It's it's fascinating to think of it from that perspective. But now that you've mentioned it, it seems totally obvious. Right. We want to make sure that they see play. And while for, with those four cards especially, we're putting them into commander decks, but they're not the face legends. So otherwise, we would have never playtested them as commanders, which seems incredibly wrong. And then, yeah, when, when we're working on sets like, you know, a Dominaria or anything that has a large amount of legends in it, we make sure to try out some of those legends separately in commander. And even what we'll do is, of course, commander is an incredibly popular format. And probably the one that, that the most people in the building play, because there's people outside of R and D who do who do you know just play Commander or got into Commander when they came into Wizards because they weren't playing Magic before or what have you. And we'll often bring them in and try and do play tests with groups of people who aren't in R and D, so they can take a look over the cards and add them into their decks and try them out as commanders. So we can see not only how we approach them, like as our tuned R&D minds, but also just how a, you know, a relatively average player, someone who's newer to the game, might uh, pick up one of these legends and build the deck around them. It's almost like you're professional yeah. about this. <laughs> we try, we try. So maybe one of our biggest questions that we'll be asking tonight, do you use EDHREC in your own personal deck building or for your research even? It, I, I use EDHREC a lot for research, absolutely. I mean, and for deck building, sure, but especially just knowing what's played, knowing what cards people might want to be reprinted, knowing what cards are showing up in Commander decks on Moss, if things are, are showing up uh, too much or too little, you know, it's just it's a great tool to have around. People asked, for, for example, for a little while, something I was really curious about and following was how many people are building decks with the new cards out of the Commander sets as opposed to just the legends we release in our mainline sets. And being able to dig in a little bit and compare and see, okay, what are the popular legends? How many of these decks are on here? Uh, that was really, really fascinating. So then, does the data on EDHREC line up, would you say, or if you could say at all, does it line up with what you at Wizards notice with different trends and what players tend to enjoy playing? You know, one of the hardest things about Magic, and especially about Commander for us, is we just don't know a lot of things. We, we don't have eyes on every table around the world, and especially when it's not a competitive format like most of Commander isn't, there's a lot of people playing Commander around the world that will never get an eyes on their games. So we have a lot of theories about things, but it's very hard for us to know what is or isn't happening. And a, a site like EDHREC gives us, makes that just a little more clear. We can look into that and, you know, but, because Outside of EDHREC, we can look at things like our Magic Online data, but, you know, Commander hasn't played a ton on Magic Online. There, there, there's, it's played an amount, but it's not, you know, the most popular format on there. Magic Online is generally a more competitive environment. And then, you know, we can look at what people are saying online and what we get out of that information. But uh, a source like EDHREC is, you know, one of the best compendiums for Commander knowledge anywhere. And we definitely like to, you know, keep that in mind. One thing about EDHREC that it kind of does, too, is it bypasses that problem you have where what people say they want and are doing doesn't necessarily always match up with what they're actually doing in reality. 
So it kind of gives you that that behind the scenes look at well, you know, people say they want really busted strong commanders or something, but in reality, no one's actually for the most part building, say, Prime Speaker Vanifar to play at a table at the at the game shop because it allows them to just you know build a linear deck that very often is going to have a win sequence. So yeah, I, I think that's one thing that's interesting to hear from you guys is you, that that data is really tough for you to come in contact with as well. Well, and and that and that's just true of of most things for magic, with the exception of like of like competitive magic, you know, competitive standard, competitive modern, right. what have you, or we, which we've got pretty good eyes on. Just data for magic is hard to come by, and we do a lot of research and a lot of studies and try doing a lot of stuff to to tap into players. But especially when it comes to that kind of um, gray matter, the the people who will never respond to a survey online or just playing on their kitchen table, it's really hard to figure that out. And EDHREC gives us a slice of that, but even then. You're you know, on EDH track. You guys are only seeing a fraction of the number of commander X players have built out there. So we, you know, like any data, you take it to inform your decisions, but you don't use that as the only thing guiding your decisions. Yeah, and Dana, that's a really keen observation to make about Prime Speaker Vanifar, which all of us saw, and we were like, "Whoa, that seems like it could be really, really busted." And all leading up to the release of Ravnica Allegiance, Prime Speaker Vanifar was on the tip of everyone's tongue. But now looking at EDA Trek, Tesa Karlov has taken the number one most built commander slot, followed by Nikia of the Old Ways, and Prime Speaker Vanifar is actually third. So you're totally right that a lot of the a lot of the chatter that we hear about something can also be completely different than the data we actually see. And of course, as a designer, we take that into account and yet have to keep keep in mind that while that's the data we have or the data you, you all are showing on EDHREC, who knows what it really is if you were to break it down, if you were omniscient and knew everything about the world, who knows what that number would actually be, you know? Right. So yeah. it's it's a trick. Yeah, because I mean, I was talking, you know, I can't remember the, the context, but someone like myself, like I update my decks online on a list that we scrape on EDHREC. I update those religiously on a weekly basis. And it's easy to assume that everyone out there who's playing EDH is doing something like that. And that's not the case. The average person is just throwing a deck together. If they have a list out there, it you know, may be updated once every six months, if that. So it's, it's really easy to kind of get yourself in that bubble where you assume everyone is doing that really ridiculously, anally retentive thing that I'm doing. And that's absolutely not the case. Right. A good example of that is probably one of Matt's earlier challenges stats on crush, uh, crush Contraband, which we all looked at and we really liked as a possible replacement for Return to Dust. But people aren't necessarily going back to their old decks and updating that, even if they are making the swap in paper. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, with EDH Trek, it's, I imagine a lot of people upload their decks and then, then they don't go back and touch that deck again. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm definitely guilty of that. You, so, so You're guilty of a lot of savage, things, I, That's That's true. I, I'm usually the guilty one here. But Gavin, I have a question. So are there ever cards, and we kind of talked about this, everybody thought Prime Speaker Vanifar would be the the far and away most built commander, but are, are there ever just cards in general that you guys in R&D target for commander, but aren't really as popular as you, as you were hoping it would be? Yeah, there are always things on both sides. You know, there are cards that we make that we think will be a lot more popular than they are. And then there are cards that we make that we don't think are going to be that popular necessarily. And then they they go bananas. And a lot, you see a lot of this in our mainline sets where, you know, we'll make six, seven, eight mana splashy cards target at Commander, put really cool new legends in there, and sometimes they just miss. And some of that is just how the format shakes out, what grabs people's attention. You know, I always go back to, um, it's a long time ago now, which is crazy for me to say because I've been at Wizards for, for what, seven and a half years, and this is one of the first things I worked on. It feels like yesterday, but of course it's not which is uh, when I worked on the Primordials in Gatecrash. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we were, the goal was to make a cycle that was something that commander players would want to play with. And so, you know, we, we did just that. And of course, Sylvan Primordial, as we all know how that one went, very, very strong. But across this cycle of cards, you have very, very, very disparate amount of playability, right? Like Sylvan Primordial sees a ton of play and until it got banned. Sadly. But, yeah. Uh, but a lot of the others, despite still being incredibly powerful cards, don't really see all that much play, at least in my experience. Now, I'm sure I could go to, I don't know, some kind of handy website that showed me numbers on how much these <laughs> cards are played and, and learn more. But in, at least the commander games I, I play, I don't see them show up that often, despite the fact that a lot of time it's like a seven mana creature that reanimates four things or something like that. And so just what people latch onto is very, very interesting. And the thing about Commander is it really, for most people, is about having fun. 
And it's not always about what is most powerful, but what the most fun way to have that power is, or what's what the most fun thing for you is. And um, the Primordials, I don't know that they scratch that itch for a lot of people, where there are other cards that, that absolutely have, and just what you know kind of gets adopted into the into the mainframe of ideas about what should be in your commander decks and, and how everything hits is so fascinating. Because unlike a standard format, you don't have the pressure of competition telling everyone what they should play. You have just the pressure of preference telling one, everyone what they should play. And that makes the cards that you put in your deck very different and what people accept as a playable commander card very different. Man, everyone's preference should be for things like Sepulchral Primordial. That, oh, that's, that's one of my Says favorites. the Necromancer. So Says the Necromancer. Uh, reanimation is one of my love languages, Matt. <laughs> it's fantastic. The sixth love language. <laughs> exactly. So, I'm curious, uh, which do you think sees more play, the black or the blue one? Uh, I think we might have even done a head-to-head on that one in a past episode. I believe Sepulchral Primordial was the one that won yeah, I think, it, but I could be I think incorrect. that's correct. You know, if we, if, we, if we had access to that kind of information at our fingertips... <laughs> s- only there was a website. ...some kind of interconnected device... You like how I just plugged us doing one of these in the middle of right. the show? It's really smooth, Gavin, really Sepulchral's smooth. Sepulchral's in t- just over 10K decks, and we're talking about what's... Oh, the blue one? Deluvian. Yes. Deluvian is in... Quite a bit less. Oh, not that many less. Eighty five hundred. Yeah, Sepulchral wins it. Although I'll cast either. I I love them. They're uh, absolute pet cards. What, what about uh, Luminate Primordial? Lo- I mean, there's no graveyard. Luminate's in twenty eight hundred, so it's pr- it's in not very many at all. And and Molten, we'll just finish the cycle out. Might as well look at Molten. Eh? Uh, Molten is in seven. Over <laughs> under. Um, it's in more. Molten's in just under five k. Really? I um, yeah. So so it's got more than Luminate. Yeah. So although some, I, uh, some so primordial is still in five hundred, so <laughs> five hundred people are doing it right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, I, I I am the guilty one here because I designed all the primordials except for the white one, which originally did something different. The white one originally got you an equipment out of your deck for Ooh. every each of your opponents and attached it to the primordial, which is pretty Gavin, cool. Huh. Gavin, um, don't tease us. But it. I mean, that didn't really end up accomplishing what the primordials were trying to do because it didn't affect each opponent. It just gave you a bonus for each opponent, which is a little bit different than how the other ones worked. Yeah. That's why we ended up going with this design, which someone else made. But the other four are my handiwork for better or worse. Did you did you have a hand in the gear hulks at all? Because I know every, you know, major set seems to have some sort of a cycle like the gear hulks, the the Titans, the primordials. Do you have a favorite of any of those types of cycles? Uh well the first question the Gearhulks, I didn't really do much with. I was tangentially involved because I was on the Kaladesh team, but mm-hmm. those are such high-profile cards trying to do what standard needed. I wasn't really working on them that much. Do I have a favorite of just, like, the big, splashy creatures? Yeah. Ooh. I've always... I know that that they're not they're not all, all the hottest, but I've always been a fan of the Avatars from Prophecy just because the, the like, mini-game of trying to set them up, I find, is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like Avatar um, of Woe, Avatar of Hope, and those? Yeah, yeah. I remember when I saw Avatar. Everyone was excited about Avatar of Woe. Everyone's always excited about Avatar of Woe. But the first time I saw Avatar of Hope, I was like, how am I going to make this work? What's the way I'm going to do this, right? And that kind of interesting deck-building puzzle is something I, I personally really enjoy, where the Primordials are just incredibly powerful when you cast them all the time. The Avatars, while probably not as strong, anywhere close to as strong as the Primordials, caused me to think, okay, how can I make this this thing kind of happen, which which I found interesting. I remember opening well, Avatar I, I also, of Hope. Oh, go ahead. I, 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 they're not big creatures, but I love one of my favorite cycles is the hideaway cycle from Lorwyn of the lands because uh-huh. that, that's another de- uh, cycle that gives you like this little mini game of, okay, how can I accomplish this? How can I, you know, get 10 power worth of creatures or whatever onto the battlefield? Yeah, I remember opening an Avatar of Might out of a pack when I was a kid and I just thought the thing was unbeatable. So yeah, I, I definitely get the feeling of those those big splashy cards everybody loves. Matt is a Timmy who calls himself a spike, I think. I am a I, I build like a Timmy. I still play like a Spike, and that's one reason I like Gavin so much. Is Gavin, you you kind of got into the game playing sixty card formats, which I mainly do, and then Commander is just a, a passion that I enjoy writing about and chatting about. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting story actually, in that my background is totally as a competitive player. I mean, I would cube draft and stuff like that, but I really didn't play any Commander uh, or not very much. I mean, I had a deck maybe, but I was offered up the position to um, to design Commander 2017. And it was my first lead design opportunity after Arch Enemy, my first real one where I got to make new magic cards, which is the, the exciting part. And um, 
I was like, well, I'm not really a commander person. Like, I, are you sure you, will you want me for this? And my boss at the time, Mark Gottlieb, said, well, just think about it. You know, take the weekend and, and think about it. And that weekend, I went to New York because I travel a lot and I just I don't take weekend trips places. And I was in New York and I was hanging out with some friends and I walked into a, a little game store there called The Uncommons. It's, it's a wonderful little shop. And um, it was shortly after the 2015 decks had come out, the ones with all the planeswalkers. And was that 15? I think it might have been 14. 14? Some, so, yeah, well, yeah, that sounds right. Maybe 15, 14? Can't remember. Can't remember. Anyway, uh, I sat down. Everyone had, um, and, I, and I didn't know anyone there. And there was a group of people in the back who just bought all the new commander decks. And they needed one more. And I just sat down and played with them. And they didn't know who I was, actually, when I, when I sat down. And I didn't know any of them. But I had such a great time playing this format. And I came back and I told my boss, hey, you know, I, I kind of had this moment over the weekend where I played it, realized how much fun it could be and how it really connected people, which is one of the things I care about most in Magic is that connection. And... Um, I signed up to do 2017, and then after that, I really moved into it. So I, it's, I'm very interested in that I have this competitive background, and I can still play very fine competitive magic. I you know, do, do playtesting, all that kind of stuff. But I also try and have this um, commander, commander mind, and so I'm one of the few people in R&D who can kind of blend both when designing, which leads me to some you know, pretty interesting perspectives and designs, and that's where you get something like Battle Bond, which has a bunch of stuff for commander players, but still has enough to keep the competitive players interested too. Um, you know, your true new nemesis of the world and what have you. Although ironically, that came out in a commander deck, which it shouldn't have. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it gives me kind of the the blend of both worlds. I, As Hannah Montana would say, the best of both worlds. Best of both worlds. Well, shout out to the Incommons. Yeah, yeah, great, great little store. True name nemesis brings up a, a pretty interesting point. I'm, I guess I'd kind of wonder if there are any commander original cards that surprised you with how popular they became. Well, you know... I will tell you one that I designed, so I've, I've paid close tabs on it, and it, its popularity has, I mean, I thought it would be uh, popular enough, but the amount to which it is popular, I just, I never anticipated when I made it. Uh, Teferi's Protection. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was working on the Vampire deck in C17. This here, Here's the actual story of Teferi's Protection, okay? I was working on the Vampire deck in C17, and I had a team meeting in three minutes, or five minutes or something like that. It was a very, very small amount of time. And I needed to fill one more hole in the in the file before we could review it. And I just like, I, I got to think of something. What do I have? What do I have? Well, what about what do vampires do? What's a top-down vampire thing? I don't know. They like puff into smoke and go away. So I typed in a card called Vanish into Smoke, which exiled all your, all your permanents. It, it basically did what Teferi's Protection does right now without the phasing. And I brought it to the meeting, and everyone loved it. And, of course, this card that I designed, and at the very last minute before a meeting, everyone just, just loved it, and I liked it too. It looked really fun. And so it stays in the file for several months, and we're having fun playing with it, you know, putting it into our decks. And then at some point, the rules manager suggests they could use phasing, which blows my mind because <laughs> I never thought I would put a phasing card in one of my sets, but, but there we are. And, that's, and then um, further down the line, I'm talking with Kelly Diggs, who's the creator rep on the set, and he's like, I have a new concept for your card. And I'm like, oh, really, man? Like, Vanishing into Smoke, there's a sweet vampire thing. I designed it as, like, this top-down vampire card. Like, are you sure that, that there's something better than that? Like, like what do you have? And he's like, check it out. It's the moment when Teferi phases out his homeland. And I was like, oh, that's just amazing. We have to do that, obviously. That's incredible. I love that. And um, that's kind of how the card came to be. And I knew it was, would be popular because, you know, players like that, that kind of thing, that feeling of, well, protection. But I did not anticipate how popular it would become. And now it's almost a white staple. You see it all over the place in Commander decks. And, uh, yeah, that's one that's really blown up on me. Well, I, I will say not only is it a staple, it's changed how I actually build decks to a degree, and it's, it's done the same thing for my playgroup. Before Teferi's Protection, it was one of those things where, like, if someone's in a board wipe or, or do whatever, well, if you have a counterspell, you counterspell it, obviously. Teferi's Protection kind of made us do the realization that better, it's, it's better to just disappear or survive that board wipe and let it hit everybody than it is to stop it from happening most of the time. And then it, it made me go back and then look, okay, well, Heroic Intervention is a much better card than I really realized it was. And Ghost Away yeah, is yeah. a much better card. And Interlude is a much better card. So there's a, 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 you know, Golgari Charm to regenerate your stuff. Like, it's made me retroactively go back and add a bunch of other older cards to kind of simulate that effect because it is so powerful in games. So that one card has, like, just tipped over the dominoes, made me go back and add a bunch of other cards to my decks. I love those kind of teaching cards where you see them and you're like, oh, this is better than I thought. I wonder what else is better than I thought. And once again, because Commander allows you to 
play with such a wide variety of cards and there isn't necessarily a good or a bad or you know honed decks you get to you get to have that discovery still you get to harness that feeling that we all had when we started magic which is really cool yeah absolutely so thank you very much for that card by the way no you're welcome thank you for me for designing it three minutes for my meeting <laughs> so i also want to ask the inverse question then are there cards that you were like really excited about that actually just didn't end up becoming very popular um yes absolutely you know you, it's easy to have misses because magic you know what i've learned when i came to wizards i thought magic design would be like all about okay we up the mana cost by two or we change it from a two two to a five five or whatever like these big big sweeping changes but what i've learned as i've got to work is magic design is really about these very, very tiny, tiny changes. And the razor's edge between a playable card and a not playable card can be a toughness or a power or a single colored mana or instant versus sorcery, like a very, very small knob. And um, so, so it's really easy to see, to, to see that, that, kind of, that kind of thing manifest itself. And in Commander 2018, I thought that the Commander Storm cards um, were going to show up a lot more than they have. And, you know, I think on a couple, we just aired maybe like one mana too high or just, you know, one tweak too high on them. And they see some play, certainly. I see them show up, but they're not nearly as ubiquitous as I thought. In particular, I thought the red one would show up everywhere. That's on my list right now. I'm looking right at it. Fury Storm is awesome. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I don't see it played that much, but maybe it'll just take time for it to show up, too. Are there ever yeah. times that, like, you guys revisit some mechanics like the Commander Storm and maybe tune some of those knobs you were talking about just to see if maybe there really was something there that you just wore off a little bit on? Well, yeah, and first of all, I think the mechanic is still great. I think Commander Storm is a is a hit. I, and I think that, actually, the cards are still quite powerful. When I see them played in games, they're always mind-blowingly strong. They just aren't making it into people's decks, which kind of goes back to... or I mean, they're, they're in plenty of decks, don't get me wrong. But it kind of goes back to... Um, you know, what I was discussing earlier about, like, the strongest thing isn't necessarily the thing that always wins out in Commander. It's, there's something else players latch onto, kind of something that, that feels fun or feels right, which is a very interesting way to deck build. And, um, yeah, if we did more Commander Storm cards, I think we could definitely, you know, try and hook it more into that or tune the knobs appropriately to get them to the right spot. But the ones that we released, I think, are still really quite strong. Fury Storm, as I mentioned, especially, is just an incredibly powerful card. They're so good with partners, too, because they'll count each partner right. cast. So, for example, I have a Virtus and Gorm list, and I get to play Skullstorm because the deck is all about having my opponent's life totals over and over again. And Skullstorm is just a perfect top end because it will do that, like, five or six times. It's so much fun. I love those cards. Right, and Skullstorm is a good example to me of a card which I think gets a lot of malign, but if you ever cast it, it's actually super strong. You get four copies of that thing off, you're just going to be chopping players' life totals and halves after a board sweeper. So, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it's like absurdly powerful, but it is still quite a good card. The limit, of course, is every commander deck only has 100 cards and you got to cut down somehow. And well, at some point, things start biting the dust. Right. Well, talking about tuning those knobs on, on different mechanics, this is one thing that's been a kind of a common topic is Boros and, and the problems with Boros. And we did a show on it, was it six months ago or so, guys? I think so. It was a while, it was ago. A while ago, yeah. And, and one of the things we kind of had all agreed on was Boros has really come a long way in the last five, six-ish years or so. You know, starting out maybe five, six years or so, we started getting those, the looting cards, whether it's like um, Wild Guess or Faithless Looting or things like that that kind of let red in small increments increase what was in their hand, the quality at least. And then Tarkir got us Outpost Siege, and we got things like Atali a couple, you know, last year, Stolen Strategy in Battlebond. Experimental Frenzy is a ridiculously strong card in Boros. So I think a lot of the problems with Boros have been addressed by you guys. You've tweaked those knobs and really fixed, particularly in, in the red half of the equation, you fixed a lot of the resource advantage problems red had. And particularly in, with Impulse Draw, as a mechanic, you fix them in the most red way possible. That mechanic is amazing, and it's so perfect for red. I just want to say, whoever designed that or came up with a concept, that's a stroke of genius as a way to fix a problem for red and do it in an appropriate way. Stroke of genius is blue, Dana. Oh, oh man, right. You're right. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking more of like a yeah. green with lava, I think, is what you're looking <laughs> right, for. Right, right. <laughs> I yeah we we stole that straight from Elkin Bottle basically the super old magic card you know the one thing with Boros I still really, really want to try and fix is a nice non-attacky commander that's the thing that it's really missing is a couple just 
car- commanders that are not just about attacking, which Boros has so, so, so many of, and maybe play into that, um, you know, impulsive draw or looting space or something. But, you know, we, we've heard, because the data on the commanders, you know, and the community voice on it is louder than ever, you know, we want to be able to do things like give Boros better commanders and try and fix some of the problems Mono White has in Commander and things like that. So we've got some cool stuff in the pipeline, but like everything, it just takes a lot, a lot of time. The next year of Magic is more or less done, so it just takes a lot of time for these, these things to come out. And uh, stay tuned, I guess is what I'll say. So on, kind of on that topic, what's what's harder just in your, your, from your point of view, what's harder is finding an if or a when for certain effects like that? Like for a non-combat Boros commander, for example, is it harder finding how to do it or when to do it? Well, there's always a way to do it. That's the thing you begin to learn as you work on magic design is there's is there's always a card you can make that can accomplish like you know a, a, a thing like that. But the question is how satisfying is it going to be? And you want to make sure that you do it and you do it right and it's in the right place. So I don't really know about if it's like a an if or a win, like, are we going to do it? Win, absolutely. We're going to have some good red-white um, non-attacking commanders for you. But we want to make sure that we have the right spot for it. We don't just want to put it into a set for it to exist in that set and not make sense with the things around it. We also want to make sure that we take the time to craft it and make it good, because I'll tell you what would be very disappointing is if we launched a red-white non-attacking commander and it turns out that it actually was you know, not a card players wanted at all or was unplayable or whatever, and people who have been waiting for it to come out for so long felt left out. Yeah, it, uh, eventually, though, you will have one for sure. Is there something awesome. inherent in Boros that makes designing some of that stuff kind of tricky? Because we see things, in, in even in a standard set, like where a Tatiova in, in Simic will exist as a, as a card that's a commander that's just accidentally really strong, and there's a very clear build path to make a really strong deck for it, versus something like Tiana that seems to have a billion roadblocks into making that that work is that something inherent in the Boros design space where it's a struggle to make an interesting legendary commander versus Simic where it seems like it's just something that accidentally happens constantly well you chose the right colors for the example I'm going to give which is or just the information I'm going to give I guess which is the thing about commander is the best thing to do are is draw cards and the second best thing to, is to play lands. Maybe you can, or maybe in reverse order, maybe you can argue the best thing to do is play lands and second best thing to do is draw cards. But in some order, the, the best two things in Commander are drawing cards and playing lands. And those are the two weaknesses of red and white. They don't really get mana acceleration and they don't really get card draw. And we're, we're working on fixing that, like you, like you mentioned with the red stuff, where blue and green, that's what blue and green does. It gets mana ramp and it gets card draw. So the problem is more endemic to the color pie. And the big question for us is, how can we stay true to Magic's color pie? We don't want to break the color pie, but still give red and white what it needs for Commander. And that's a challenge we've had a lot of meetings about and a lot of discussion about. And you'll have to wait to see what the results of those meetings were. Yeah, usually the things that would make red and white you know, make up for their lack of draw or ramp is just their speed. But that speed is just so much harder to capture in a multiplayer format. Yeah, right. Attacking is not the best thing to do in Commander because your opponents have 40 life and you have a bunch of opponents. So what makes red and white traditionally work in a competitive sense and, you know, standard or modern or limited isn't what's going to make them work in a Commander sense. And it's important that we design things for Commander because it is one of the most popular formats out there. Yeah, for sure. Alrighty, well, as we start to wrap up, I tell you what, I would like to challenge some statistics. We're going to take a look at some of the data on EDHREC and maybe note whether we think that it's a little incorrect if some of the cards are showing as maybe more popular than we think they ought to be or less popular than we think that they ought to be. Gavin, as our guest of honor, would you like to start us off challenging some statistics? Yeah, I've got a card. Holy smokes have I got a card for you. I'll tell you what my current weapon in Commander is that I have never seen another human cast in a game of Commander but is just a ridiculous magic card. You might not even know what this card is. Y'all ready? Go for it. We are ready. It's the card Reap. Do you guys know this card? Man. I want to say it returns cards from your graveyard to your hand based on the number of black permanents another person controls. Am I close? Yeah, I know. You're spot on. You're actually, you you nailed it. Good work. Graveyard stuff. Yes. Who who are you with your your (laughs) knowledge of black cards? (laughs) I think that one's a green card. Do you want to read it out a, for nailed folks? It. You just... nailed it. It's a, it's a green card. Good work. Yes. <sighs> yeah, so I'll tell you all about the power of Reap here. So Reap is one and a green. It's from Tempest, and it's an instant. And it says, return up to X target cards from your graveyard, where X is the number of black permanents target opponent controls as you cast the spell. 
So if you're playing a game of Commander, you're almost certainly going to have at least one of your opponents playing black. I'd be shocked if that wasn't true, which means this is just a two-mana instant re regrowth on its own. But, uh, like, if they have one black permanent. But if you, they have multiple black permanents, it's easy for this to be, be a return two, three, four, five card, especially as the game drags on, for just two mana. Also relevantly, it doesn't exile itself. So if you're returning things like Recollect or Eternal Witness or whatever, it's super easy to just loop this thing over and over and over again. So yes, it is color restricted, but that hasn't stopped things like Carpet of Flowers from being incredibly strong, you know? So this is a really strong card that I think does not see anywhere close to the amount of play it deserves. I just excellent. I just looked it up. It's it's you're right. It's an old school uncommon from Tempest. Right. And, right. And it says graveyard on it. And so it's Joey a cheap card. It. It's like twenty five cents. And let's see. It's played in a hundred and twenty nine decks on EDH Rec. That is, there are more decks currently containing Sylvan Primordial on EDH Rec <laughs> than Reap. <laughs> so think about that. Think about that for a second. This card is just totally, but like, am I wrong? This card is totally nuts. There is a lot of upside, yeah. No, I'm super on board. Yeah, a lot of upside. The upside is I return all the cards in my graveyard That's to my true. hand. That is, that is true. Upside. Your opponent makes <laughs> like a few black tokens. Yeah, all right, sounds great. Your opponent plays a bunch of black enchantments. No problem. They got creatures lingering about. Easy peasy. This card is, is rocking. I would highly, highly suggest. Here, six months from now, when when Reap goes to like a two dollar card, Gavin retires suddenly because <laughs> right. he's he's sitting on a million <laughs> copies of Reap. All right, Matt, do you want to go next? I I sure can. So I was looking at for my next article. I was trying to port over the uh, the mono blue beaters, mono blue zoo deck that uh, has kind of been taken standard by storm, uh, and I was looking at Edric's by Master Tress decks just because it, it, he likes to play little blue evasive critters. And one that I, I didn't see on the list at all, um, it's on the new Umazawa card, Tetsuko Umazawa. But Cephalid Constable is a card that shows up pretty high in Umazawa decks, but not in Edric's Bymaster Trust. I know it doesn't have uh, evasion built in, but Cephalid Constable is one blue-blue for a 1-1 Cephalid Wizard. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, return up to that many target permanents that player controls to their owner's hands. This card currently does not show up at all on Edric's Bymaster of Trust decks. Uh, I think, considering that if you can find a way to give it any sort of evasion, and heaven forbid even pump it a little bit, uh, there's so much of a tempo swing bouncing all those big splashy permanents we were talking about. This card is so good. I, I think just drawing a card with Edric and then being able to get something out of the way for future turns, that's, that's some big game that I think is better than the 902 decks total that Cephalid Constable's played in right now. A friend of mine had a Rafik deck that ran Cephalid Constable, and it did yeah, man. so much work yeah, man. on that deck. It hurt so bad. And Edric decks do pretty often run Wing Crafter, so you can give it flying there. They pretty often run um, Moth Dust Changeling, which I think you can tap to give a creature flying. So there are ways by default in Edric decks to give it evasion. The counterpoint, I would say, Matt, is at three mana, that's a gazillion mana in an Edric deck. That is a lot of mana, yeah. But it's an interesting card. I should look at it for my Edric deck. I'm thinking more maybe like with Xur or something, right? Like you put some slick aura on this guy, slam in, hit your opponent, return a bunch of their stuff. Be good with, uh, what was your your double strike enchantment from a couple weeks ago, Dana? Dual Heritage, yeah. That one. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you can do. That card is surprisingly nasty, but really everyone just doesn't really give it the time of day. So yeah, I'm totally on board. Yeah, we, we, we talked about Vapor Snag a few weeks ago, and I mean, that gets stuff out of the way. Chain of Vapor gets stuff out of the way. This is something on a stick that you can repeat, and a little easier to abuse creatures than it is spells. And it's a wizard, so you can make a copy of it with your Anala deck. It, it is a wizard. Play. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's crafty. <laughs> Alrighty, I'm going to move on to my challenge stats now. I'm looking specifically at the partner pair Okaun, Eye of Chaos, and Zinder Split, Eye of Wisdom. These are the really cool coin-flipping partners, and buddy of mine is currently building those, and he ran into a couple of really weird anomalies on their EDH rec page while he was looking at cards that would synergize with their abilities. So Okaun and Zinder Split let you flip coins at the beginning of combat until you lose a flip, and each of them gives you a direct benefit whenever a player wins a coin flip. Okaun doubles his power, Zinder Split would let you draw cards. But a lot of folks are probably just looking at the words flip a coin on those commanders, and they're not paying attention to the specific wording that you have to win those coin flips. 
As such, certain cards like Two-Headed Giant or Goblin Assassin are currently showing up on their EDH rec page at pretty high percentages, but they probably shouldn't because they don't actually let you win coin flips. So for example, Two-Headed Giant, 4-mana 4-4 Giant Wizard that says when it attacks, you flip two coins, and then if both come up heads, it gains double strike until end of turn. If both come up tails, it gains menace until end of turn. That's really cool for coin flipping, and if you've got some synergy with cards like Crux Thumb, that might be kind of interesting, but they don't actually win you any coin flips, so they wouldn't trigger Zindersplit or Okown. The same is also true of a card like Goblin Assassin, it doesn't actually win coin flips. Molten Sentry shows up on the page, Mana Clash, uh, Ralzeric, although Ralzeric is really, really cool just for the potential of getting extra turns, so I can forgive that one, but there are some cards to pay attention to on Okound and Zindersplit because they don't actually win you any coin flips, so make sure that you're paying attention to those wording. Okay. I can uh, do Oak that. Oakwan and Zendersplit are two of my favorite designs from Battlebond, and uh, as someone who's played a lot of that deck, sometimes you, yeah, like a Ralzeric's nice because you've got your Krark's Thumb or whatever anyway, but yeah, be very, very careful about that wording. Yeah, Don Miner... As soon as Zendersplit and Okound came out, he made this massive spreadsheet and, and charts and made all these calculations of how fast he can combo out and do all these random things with either of the cards. And it was it was impressive just making the doctor in computer science get doctor in computer science-y about commanders. He can't not focus on data. That's just how he operates. That's 100% true. Alrighty, Dana, do you want to wrap it up with your challenge stats? I will wrap it up with a classic, classic land card that's been uh, wreaking havoc in Magic for a whole lot of years, and in Commander in particular for quite a few years, and that's Maze of Ith. It's in just over 18,000 decks in EDH Rec, and for those that don't know, it's a land that lets you untap target attacking creature and prevent all combat damage that will be dealt to and by that creature this turn. And I think Maze of Ith is probably overplayed in Commander at this point. Ooh, gasped. Once upon a time, it was a fearsome way to uh, keep you from getting domed. I think these days, the way the game has evolved, very frequently creatures you don't want swinging in at you have some form of protection that keeps you from targeting them with Maze of Ith. And I think having a land that comes down and doesn't tap for mana in, you know, 99% of cases, I guess you can have an Urborg out or a, or a Lantern out or something, but most of the time it's, it's soaking up your land drop slot and it's going to, you know, on occasion there's times when someone has some big beater that doesn't have protection, doesn't have shroud or hexproof and you're going to save yourself from damage or you can save one of your creatures from an unsuspecting, from a block that you weren't ready for. But I, I think it probably burns people more frequently than it saves them. That's been my experience. You know, once upon a time, I had Maze of Ith in a whole lot of decks, and I'm down to one, and it's mostly out of obstinance in that one deck. I, I probably should pull it. I just don't think it does the job anymore. I don't think it does 18,000 decks worth of work anymore. Wow, that's those are some big words. Strong Dana. words, yeah. Gavin, do you have any... Any input on that one? I don't know. I think I might be challenging Dana's feel, challenge. Feel, feel free to rebut Dana all you want. <laughs> I think Maze of Ith is insanely powerful. It should probably be in most commander decks. I, so my, my stance is basically commander games are always going to go long. So while missing one land drop to play it, admittedly, is, isn't, isn't the greatest moment. The fact that it just causes people to attack other players over the course of the entire game just saves you so much damage and gives you such political power. Now, I do think it's overrated. So if we're looking at it from that stance, I do think it's a little bit overrated, but it's still so powerful. I, I try and always play it when I can. I think it's one of those cards that people start playing Commander and just get wrecked by it because they you know don't have Greaves in their deck or don't have anything like that, and they're counting on getting that Craw Worm through. I think players start off playing that and, and get destroyed by it and then maybe don't reevaluate whether or not it still does that same thing as their deck building has changed and as their meta has evolved. So, Dana, quick question. What are your thoughts on a card like Thematic Compass, which I believe flips over to Spires of Araska, which is a sort of a functional I think amazing. there's a lot less downside. I think even something like Corehaven, I don't think Corehaven's an amazing card, but I think Corehaven never burns me. And I think Maze of Ith has burned me enough times that it that I don't love seeing it in decks in a way that I feel like something like Core Haven or Thematic Compass is safer. And I know that's partially a, a way I build that I don't like that that low floor in a card. So I think that's also part of it. It's maybe me a little bit personally, but I think those those other two cards that I mentioned are much safer. It's you're not going to get a situation where 
it just doesn't do anything for you or it also jobs you in terms of having mana, whereas Mesa Vith can do both of those things. Well, that's a bold challenge, but hey, challenging the stats is always about being bold. Indeed. All right, folks, I think we're going to wrap it up, but did we have any last-minute questions for Gavin before he heads out? When are you going to reprint Armageddon in Standard? Because I'll totally play Standard again. (laughs) Well, if you're the kind of player who wants us to reprint Armageddon to play Standard, you're probably better not playing, uh, not reprinting Armageddon so you don't play Standard. That's true. (laughs) Alrighty, with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and Gavin, of course, you as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the EDH RecCast. Yes, thank you, Gavin. We we definitely appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And thank you for having me on, and thank you for all the hard work y'all do. Really, I appreciate it. The Magic community is so important to me, and the fact that you all not only work on this podcast, but you know, focus on EDH Rec and help populate it, and you know, bring this great tool out to people's computers is is really marvelous. So thank you for all the hard work you all do, and thanks to everyone who listened. If you have any questions at all, you're always welcome to hit me up on Twitter as well. You can find me at Gavin Verhey, and I'm happy to answer anything you might uh, be wondering. Awesome. That I can talk about, which is you know, a slice of that. <laughs> awesome. And if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me once a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes, and if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast, too. This cast is posted every week on our community content spotlight section at EDHREC, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by your own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. I assume your uh, your, your friends there are a little classier than uh, Matt and myself. I, I tend to surround myself with people who make me want to be better, because when it comes down <laughs> to it, I'm just... So you're saying we don't do that. We don't make you want to be better. Yeah, so like joining EDH Rec was like the worst possible thing I could have done because it was a total step backwards. <laughs>